facts, fibs, and fairy tales. Not to sidebar it too much at this point, because there's way more sidebars later. This hot piece of ass, apparently. Get it. That it just, like, it just exploded. I've, like, never seen jizz like this. She was like, oh, you're not supposed to sleep over on the first date. I was like, yeah, fair enough. But did you ever see her again? Or was that, was that it? That was last night. It was like an audience participation. No. Sort of deal. And, like, you know me. Any attention I can get, I'm going to fucking take. Yeah. Like, that's my currency, his attention. (laughs) Welcome back to Facts, Fibs, and Fairy Tales. It is your factual fairy, Matt Sweet, reporting to you live from his very own kitchen, wearing just jogging shorts. That's right. This episode, we're going full topless. (laughs) I hope this episode finds you well wherever you are. Uh, welcome to the fifth of a total of six where I cold read that book I wrote that one time. Um, just a cute, quick update. Uh, she's fresh off some time in the wilderness and a quick visit home. And so she's feeling like both a little melancholy and a little excited and a little depressed, but also jazzed, which are all, I guess, the same thing. But the point is, uh, you know, uh, being unemployed and single uh, is <laughs> complicated. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's my quick little update. Uh, things to know about me. Let's see. Last night I discovered that there is a uh, 250 tequila shot special on Tuesdays at O'Grady's on Church Street in Toronto. And... Um, that clears up my Tuesday plans for the foreseeable future, which is really great. Um, yeah, I think that's pretty much it. So let's dive into cold reading. So this is, uh, I guess, what what chapter is this? This is like chapter seven of the memoir. Uh, and it's called Sometimes the Bottom Just Falls Out From Under You. And this is about getting laid off. Which, uh, since writing this, I, I don't know if my most recent unemployment counts as being laid off. I mean, technically it was, uh, uh, what was it, a no contest termination or whatever the technical terminology was there. Um, <laughs> not sure if that's it. But either way, it's like a layoff, but it felt more personal. <laughs> Anywho, uh, let me just dive into to telling the story. Um, And then we'll have one more after this, and then we'll get back to your regular programming. All right, so this is sometimes the bottom just falls out from under you. And I'm going to expand this window so that I don't have to work so hard, because you know I don't like that. (laughs) Okay, here we go. The first time I got laid off, I was 25. I was working at Ryerson University in their undergraduate admissions office, and it was a really great job. In fact, I had come back to it after a year away generally generally managing a dance company and kind of having my soul crush. This gig, though, it was perfect. It had the power of union protections, the benefits were outstanding, and the work itself was rewarding. Further, it was the kind of work that had to be left at the end of the day, none of that bringing your work home with you bullshit. My colleagues were a motley crew of people that I got on very well with. We had the benefit of being on the phone or working with clients all day, so we didn't have time to become engrossed in interpersonal drama. I also had a desk, which meant that while I ordered, rather, which meant that while I answered rote questions about when a student would hear whether they had gotten in, I could play Sudoku and keep my brain active. The money was excellent, with lots of room to grow if that was what I desired. 
and I was weeks away from being made permanent and gaining access to free classes at the university. I could pursue my dream of becoming a psychologist while I worked, and it was going to be awesome. Then one day I got pulled into the boss's office. She was a lovely woman named Charmaine who had only ever been kind to me. One of those hyper-productive humans that makes you feel lazy no matter what. She tells me that there have been budget cuts across the board in the university, and that unfortunately I was being let go. She goes on to say that she really wishes it didn't have to happen, and that I shouldn't take this as a reflection of my work in any way. Which of course means that I immediately began examining my actions to figure out why it was me. Two weeks prior, they had introduced scripting to us. We were essentially a glorified answering service, and part of what had made us one of the more desirable interactions on campus was our genuineness. We went out of our way to help people even when it wasn't an issue in our department. Any of you who have interacted with academic bureaucracy will know that sometimes a nice smile and some help goes a long way. But suddenly they wanted us to answer the phone in a specific way and end calls with a specific phrase like, when you've just called to scream at your bank, and they end the call with, thank you for choosing CIBC. Now I don't know about you, but that fucking sentence makes me want to hurl my phone across the room. I just can't understand how anyone thinks that statement has any value. And so Ryerson had introduced scripted responses like that, and it was the first time I was resistant to anything at work in my life. What a very, very different person I was back then. There was a day when our assistant manager came around to listen in on our conversations to make sure that we were using the script. She was a woman I didn't have a lot of patience with. While she was lovely as a human, she did very little in the way of supporting the work or providing anything constructive for us. Here she was, huddled in my cubicle with me. I answer a phone call that was very complex. It was a helicopter parenting meets a non-admission meets tears. Which is sort of a long way to say, when a parent calls in about their kid's application, you aren't actually allowed to tell them anything about it because they're protected through privacy laws, uh, or rather their kid is. And so it kind of gets tricky answering those calls. And I got through the phone call. I gave the client the steps they could take, and I worked them away from their angry tears. I tell them to have a great day and thank them for calling. And after, this assistant manager turns to me and says, but you didn't tell them to check their choose portal. That was the second item on the script. My reaction was very much one of rage. I just couldn't believe that she wanted me to stick to the script when the issues were complex, and plugging this particular service would have done no good for this particular client. I generally stick to doing the best I can for anybody, regardless of the job, and I believe that being genuine and helpful goes a long way. So we had a heated discussion about it, which ended with her saying, do it anyway, while I said no, because I don't believe it is in service to our clients. This voices raised chat happened steps away from Charmaine's office, and to this day, there's a part of me that believes this conversation was the thing that did me in. The truth is that budget cuts happened, and I was the last hired, so therefore first fired. The sad part is just how much I have come to idealize that position. When people ask me what I wish I could do for my day job, the answer is always client service specialists and Ryerson admissions. It has really taken up space in my head as this magical place where a living wage is possible in an environment where growth is only limited by your desire and potential. Obviously, it wasn't that great. No place is, but for me, that gig is definitely the best I've ever had. And years later, I was a different person. I was two years into working at Decor and More, the place where Leslie Bell told me to never keep my opinions to myself. I was 31 and was struggling to find the right job for me in the company. I'm an excellent soft seller, but hard selling, the 
cold-calling, aggressive kind just isn't my strength. Since I had started, the leadership had told me they wanted to get me in rooms with people so I could sell the pants off them. I kept waiting for this to happen, and it never really materialized. Instead, I kept writing sales files for various events and tried to find a space that might be a better match for my skill set. Meanwhile, the oil crash had come, and suddenly a giant component of the company's annual income had vanished. We all knew that at some point this would catch up with us, but we were all trying to dig for cash in order to keep the lights on. I had finally found a place where my skills as a facilitator and mover of mountains could work for me in the company. I had taken on a rebranding project, leading the redesign of their website and driving the marketing and media targets for the organization. And I kind of accidentally discovered a bit of aptitude in this area, and it seemed to be making everyone around me happy. But then I started to notice that all the other parts of my job had dried up. I passed a number of whispered conversations between management that ended when they saw me. The vice president had become a buddy of mine and he didn't really look me in the eye and seemed to avoid conversations with me in the final weeks. I also stopped being given events or files to write, which was supposed to be the majority of my function there. And all these clues put together began to be suspicious. Combined with the first experience of being laid off, the writing was on the wall. My friend Brittany, who started with me and, and generally felt the same way about the shenanigans of the place, kept saying there was absolutely no way they would get rid of me. She felt that they would be foolish if they did. Now, I don't know whether she was just being kind about my value or not, but it was nice to have her ease some of my fear as my suspicions mounted. And that's a pretty core component of my psyche right there. People love to attribute value to me, and I struggle to believe them. It is very kind that everyone seems to think that I'm a magical creature, but the facts of my life often make it very hard to believe it myself. That is why I spend so much time working at being a fucking unicorn, because goddammit, if others can see it, I damned well better see it myself. Brittany was certain that they couldn't lay me off. The sales office had just hired a new salesperson, and certainly she would be let go rather than me. Of course, the new hire was a buddy of our manager, and our manager had once told me that, while she sat in my interview, she had argued against hiring me. She felt I was too bold, apparently. Despite all that, Brittany insisted that they wouldn't let me go. So I buried my head in the rebranding, website, and marketing elements so that I would at least feel busy. The more I asked for files, the more wishy-washy the excuses for not giving them to me became. On my ride home with my commuting buddy, who worked in another department, I would go on and on about how the end was coming for me. I'm sure he grew quite tired of me eventually. Then the day finally came where they pulled the trigger. Every department was forced to sacrifice one person in order to keep the lights on. Apparently, I drew the short straw in sales. The president and vice president pulled me into their office to tell me that I was being temporarily laid off. They were hoping to bring everyone back, they said. They hoped that I could understand how much they hated having to do it. I remember I laughed a lot during that meeting. In my head, it was mainly because they were pretending that this was a temporary thing. I had never really fit in there. They didn't want me to design events because my aesthetic was too wacky. They wouldn't send me out to meet people and generate business, even when they had opportunities to do so, because they feared me being too unpredictable. And then they didn't want me writing sales proposals because I went too boring in my attempts to be less wacky. So why would anyone bring back someone who didn't fit the job description they were supposed to be doing? And who had begun to perform important functions, but functions that typically the company didn't really invest in or care about? I told them I understood and quickly moved into a quick planning session about how to hand over my projects to them. When I returned to my office, there was nobody there. The other salespeople were locked in a meeting, and my manager was 
accidentally absent. I put to together a quick little handover checklist, packed up my things, and started the long walk to the train station. During that walk, I got a call from my manager, apologizing and saying she had intended to be there, but had been pulled into an off-site meeting. As the cold March wind whipped around me, all I kept thinking <laughs> during that call was how they could have at least offered me a cab to the fucking train station. That walk was probably a good thing, though. It forced me to process some of my immediate emotions. The very next day, I reached the second phase of being laid off. Previously, it had taken me a week or two to get out of phase one, which is anger, and into phase two, which is hope or optimism. They say experience makes you more efficient, and it's totally true. Once you know how it works, it is way easier to get through the good parts of a thing. Or get through to the good parts of a thing? I don't know, this is clunky. <laughs> one of the shittiest parts of being laid off is having to talk about it. Every time you tell somebody, it's like you have to tell them how useless you are. And that what has just happened to you is perfect evidence. You have been judged inferior by an entire organization. So this time I tried something a little different. I posted a video to Facebook about it. And basically I said what had happened, that I wasn't super upset, and that I felt like I was going to be okay. It was totally therapeutic and got the bulk of the word out there so I didn't have to have that conversation over and over again. After I posted it, it felt a bit like a weight had been lifted off my shoulders. But not long after that video went up, I started to get reports from a few of my former colleagues at Bay Cornmore that it was blowing that joint up. Apparently, there were a flurry of meetings about it and how they would handle the fallout of it. You see, they had enacted these layoffs at the very week of the Canadian Special Event Conference. They were worried about it getting out and were trying to figure out how to spin their mass layoff in a positive light. When I heard about that from my friends on the inside, I laughed a lot. It may have been in a slightly malicious way, I won't even lie about it. <laughs> the idea that a video posted by little old me that only my friends could see would cause such a commotion was kind of really funny to me. When I had been laid off uh, the first time, I had gone into this deep sense of panic. The first few days after were a flurry of applying for jobs and worrying about the future and not knowing how to apply for employment insurance. It was awful. This time, I forced myself to take a week to simply be a human person. The most I did was submit my first claim for employment insurance, and then I just relaxed and spent time outside or inside killing people in video games. And if you ever find yourself in the same situation, take the time. I promise it really does help. Then when it's time to start looking for the next gig, you aren't acting from a reactionary place, but from a much more stable and wise space. And that's the biggest thing I have taken away from my history of layoffs. Self-care is real, and it matters. We get so tied up in the day-to-day -day worry of existing that we forget that our brain sometimes needs a break. And the more relaxed your mind is, the more adaptive it becomes, and the better it can react to change. And it was during this period of time that I reread the brilliant book Stumbling on Happiness by Daniel Gilbert. It's a brilliant piece of writing that really breaks down how happiness works, and I absolutely recommend it to anyone. And the big point I took away from it is that you can't plan for your own happiness. Essentially, the person you are when you make the plan isn't the person you are when you achieve it. And that's part of why lottery winners describe themselves as no more or less happy than they were before the win. If we are all taking our baggage with us into the future, I've learned that it is far better to capture the joy you can find en route, rather than hope and pray happiness will be hiding in your destination. The seismic collapse of my life twice, <laughs> so far, forced this into perspective for me. We put so much of our personal value into our careers, in many cases our entire identity is wrapped up in 
what we do to pay our bills, that the sudden loss of that can really destroy a person. So now I try to spread myself out. I don't think so hard about what it is I do for work, but instead identify myself as a creative person who loves to play dodgeball and ultimate frisbee. In this way, I have become someone who is much more willing to take life at its face value and chase the moments of utter joy it can offer without worrying so hard about making them last forever. Joy is fleeting, sure, but it'll always come back if you let it. And as someone who battles depression, this is the thing I repeat over and over to myself. It can be so easy to just get tied in knots by the negative thoughts that cycle through your brain. In times of crisis, it's always best to try to be the unicorn you are, even if you have to fake it. My friend Alan said it best when I asked him what he thinks makes a unicorn. He said, Give less fucks about what other people think of you. Give even less fucks about the negative stuff you think about yourself. Repeat. I think the more we all take his advice, the better off we will all be. So strap on your hooves and make joy happen, kids. <laughs> and that's part seven, apparently. It, it's kind of funny, the, the parallels here. I mean, having not quite been laid off, but, <laughs> I don't know, consciously uncoupled from my last employment situation. Um, yeah, that sort of idea of what self-care is and how necessary it is, especially when you have literally nothing but time, it starts to matter a lot. Um, I think one of the pieces of advice I'd give you if you're ever struggling and you've you know, been laid off or quit or whatever, always make time and take time for yourself. Because um, unemployment, I mean, we all want it to be as short as possible so that we can get back to sort of earning a real living, but it is definitely more of a marathon than a sprint. So the more calm you can be, the easier it will be. Um, that said, that's fucking hard to do, and weeks like this, I'm losing my mind a little bit, because I just need somewhere else to be other than my apartment. Um, but I also only want to spend time by myself in the darkness, because I'm depressed about breakups and unemployment and all that good stuff, so I don't know. What the fuck do I know about anything? <laughs> but the more time you take for yourself to, like, do things that bring you even a, a, a modicum of joy, that, I think, is worth chasing. So that's my, my advice on uh, week five of cold reading that book I wrote that one time. <laughs> and with that, this is your Factual Fairy Matt Sweet signing off. I hope you had a great week, and I hope uh, the coming week is just as good. And stay tuned, one more of these, and then we're back to our regular, 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 regular programming. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in, listeners. If you want to connect with me, if you want to be a guest on the podcast, you can reach out to me uh, on Twitter at FactsFibsFairy, or on Facebook or Instagram at FactsFibsAndFairyTales, or you can reach out by email at FactsFibsAndFairyTales at gmail.com. When you get home, I would like you to masturbate. Ha <laughs> ha!